1: Hello. Sorry, bit weird. Inexplicably turned into Kermit the Frog there as an intro. Hello. This is Owen Jones on YouTube. Um, we did stop doing the Thursday live shows, but I just thought ad hoc. I mean, I wasn't going to go out to the pub, was I? Uh, so I thought ad hoc we do occasional shows. Uh, if you're watching live, hello. If you're listening to the podcast, also hello. The podcast has been going very strong, which has been very exciting. Do leave a review in five stars if you're on you, on, the, on the podcast. And if you haven't subscribe to the podcast, please do do do, do so. Uh, I'm going to kick off, before I do, we've got a very, very exciting uh, program today. Okay, look, I know the title's depressing, and various experts on political framing have been in touch to say the title is a big no-no. You should not do catastrophist, uh, lang- use, catastrophist language about climate change emergency. It's demobilizing. and I Look, I get, okay, I messed up. I probably should have said, how are we going to save humanity, rather than maybe just start on the off with, are we all going to die? I I realize this is not the cheeriest time we've ever spent alive as human beings in the post-war period, as is. So maybe throwing that in hasn't helped. But that doesn't matter, because we've got two absolutely incredible authors, uh, Matthew Lawrence and uh, Laurie Laban, who are going to come on and talk about Planet on fire which again is actually full brimming full of alternatives of hope uh so this is going to be a very hopeful and optimistic ad hoc show now just firstly i'm going to do some basic admin if you're watching live please do click through to youtube it really helps with the show click subscribe and click the notification bell and that helps you it helps the algorithm like the video like the video instantly I mean, that's cost-free. Why wouldn't you do that anyway? Click like, and that will encourage other people to watch the video. I do appreciate most of you watch after the event, but it just helps. Um, Also, for those who are supporting us on Patreon, so we can do documentaries and all the other stuff we're doing, podcasts, everything else, we just did this um, video documentary this week, uh, which was about uh, how companies have profited from COVID-19, like Amazon and so on. Uh, That was down to your support. So thank you so, so much uh, for those who want to support us and suggest ideas for documentaries, interviews, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, that supports the team on union wages, which is great during crisis. You can also support the channel, ask questions to the guests by using super chat, the little pound sign below. And I'm going to start before I bring in our guests. And I should apologize, by the way, for those watching live, watching me disintegrate, don't do high intensity workouts before you go on a camera. Just a little bit of basic life admin. We all learn the hard way. Now, this is what we're going to talk about to begin with. I want to talk about this because I think it's very, very important. Now, you'll all be aware that last Sunday, there were protests in Bristol, which got pretty aggro. And the protests were against the policing bill, which grants the police sweeping powers to shut down any peaceful protest. Also, by the way, very important Uh, particularly targets, Roma, Traveller, and Gypsy communities. And uh, the local police force afterwards, this is Somerset and Avon, they claimed in a statement that one officer had suffered a broken arm and another suffered broken ribs. Both have been taken to hospital. They also claimed in in a statement that one of them also suffered a punctured lung. Now, clearly those are serious injuries, and they were treated as such by the media. So if we look at The Sun, uh, The Sun splashed on kill the bill protest, cop's lung collapses as he's stamped on, and another suffers broken bones. Another video uh, published by The Sun, so I've put a video published by The Sun, uh, which got nearly 167,000 views already, headline, Cop's lung collapses and another bones uh, broken. It's the same with the broadcast media. So on Sky News, they splashed on officers suffer broken arm and ribs after Kill the Bill protests descend into violence. These protests were really widely reported across the British media. So take the Spectator. They published an article headlined, the Bristol riot show, the danger of ignoring anti-police extremism, citing the seriously injured officers in the first paragraph of the article as evidence. Now, when the Labour MP Nadia Whitton was asked on television, she said she condemned all the violence and would wait to see what actually happened. Now, she was piled on, including on Twitter, uh, with a serious injury, such as a punctured lung, frequently cited in those attacks on Nadi Witten. One small problem with all of this. After these reports were very widely circulated, the police force quietly retracted the reports on Wednesday. No officer suffered any serious injury in those protests. Hold on a minute. Let's just think about this. Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe they just didn't know how badly injured the officers were. Maybe they had possible broken bones and a possible collapsed lung. Well, they didn't say that in the statement. I mean, I just said possible, didn't I? Uh, But they didn't say that. They said as a definite, these were definite statements, which were then reported as fact. Now I suppose the question is what medical advice with the police force is given. I'm very interested in that, which is why I got in touch with the press department of the police force. And I would love for them to answer, but they have failed to get back to me, even though I messaged them hours ago. These are press officers. It's their job to deal with annoying people like me. I know my other colleague, the uh, colleagues at the Guardian, having read their own coverage, they haven't got back to them either. Uh, So I would like to know on what basis did they, as definites, report very serious injuries, including an officer being stamped on so their lung collapsed and broken ribs and broken arms. Now, why does this matter? I think this is beyond unfortunate. Should we just put it that way? Because there is an increasingly authoritarian atmosphere in this country uh, which, uh, with the government and its supporters, intolerant of protest and dissent, hence legislation, which the protests were about, of course, the policing bill, which will allow the police to crack down, essentially, if you look at the provisos, and any protest, any protest judged to cause annoyance. The point of a protest is to cause annoyance to someone, i.e. those in power, generally. That's, that really is the point of protest. Um, now, these widely circulated claims of serious injuries, and it's worth pointing about the f- subsequent clarifications Got nowhere near the same amplification. So you get these big uh, headlines and videos going viral from the media. But then the police, just a few days later, when people aren't talking about the protest anymore, go, oh, yeah, there weren't any injuries. That was serious. Uh, That helps fuel an atmosphere of demonizing protesters and supporting the police being handed more authoritarian powers to shut down our rights and freedoms that were fought for at huge cost and huge sacrifice by our ancestors, who I would know, many of whom felt the hard smack of police batons in their faces and were demonised by the media and indeed were demonised by media outlets and the police authorities for being violent hoodlums in their day. That's just a fact. We could go back, LGBTQ activists, trade unionists, Women, the suffragettes, most notably, who uh, lauded now as secular saints. Oh, boy, they were not at the time. They were terrorists and anarchists at the time. Uh, People who fought racism, uh, people who fought for, I mean, all our rights and freedoms, to be honest, including people, really, if you go back, were massacred by the state, like at the Peterloo Massacre of 1819 in Manchester. So I think there's something of a history here, which we do need to just briefly unpick before I bring in I guess to puncture, hopefully, the pessimism of the title of this video. So back in 2008, police aggressively shut down climate camp protesters near King's North Power Station. They claimed several resulting injuries. That turned out to be false. There were no injuries sustained in clashes with the protesters. One injury turned out to be an insect bite. Another was toothache. Uh, there were other examples, 2017. Sussex Police admitted that their claims that several Crystal Palace fans had attempted to force entry to the Derby and Brighton and Hove Albion armed with knives and knuckle dusters. Very alarming, I think we can all agree. Fans tooled up with knives and knuckle dusters. Not good. Oh, but they were false, those reports. N- didn't happen. No knives, no knuckle dusters. Widely circulated. Turned out to be False. There are far worse examples, far worse examples. If we go back to 2009, when the homeless newspaper vendor, Ian Tomlinson, died at the G20 protest, which he wasn't attending, by the way. He was just on his way home at the time. Had nothing to do with it. Not that would have changed anything, by the way. Irrelevant. Uh, but the media regurgitated false briefings from the police, with the evening standards splashing on police belted with bricks as they helped dying man a pack of lies, false, wrong, incorrect, nothing correct about that, zero. And the only reason that was proven to be false was because back, and bear in mind back then, camera phones and the they were. I mean, people had them, but there were just less of them. But thankfully, someone recorded what had happened. Uh, and if they hadn't, we might never know the truth. It would have just been these, oh, well eyewitnesses demonized as protesters. So how can we believe what they say? Uh, would have, cl- you know, their word against the police. The police, oh, we've got to believe everything the police say and the media back them up. But it turned out, of course, that Tomlinson was struck by a police officer and an inquest later found it was an unlawful killing. The, going way back, well, not way back, the Battle of Orgreave. My dad was at Orgreave, not as a minor. This was during the minor strike in the mid-1980s when the police charged it minors then the BBC ran a tape in a different order to make it look like the miners had attacked the police. A nonsense, a lie. The BBC have still not apologised for that, by the way. Even though it's clear, just a fact, what they did is they changed the order of the tape. Clever, very devious, and that cut through because at the time, now you see, one Labour MP—I'm not going to name just a generic obnoxious Labour MP—you uh, know—he said, "Ah, oh, he 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 looked, he salivated." Over images of police battening protesters in Bristol, and he denied he salivated when I challenged him. But I think three clapping emojis uh, over a video of police officers whacking protesters is pretty close to salivation. Um, and then he—I uh, pointed out—people like him throughout history, miners, etc., uh, LGBTQ activists have always done what he's done: salivated over state violence. And he said, No, oh, I represent a mining community. I mean, he's not a, you know, he's the son sort of a film critic. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just if he's gonna go all authentic on me, let's just stick to those facts. So he he was like, oh, the my you know, oh, the miners suffered police brutality. Those miners were demonized at the time. I know now people watch Pride, brilliant film, and think, oh well, everyone loves the miners. At the time, public opinion wasn't on their side. Sorry to airbrush some lies out of history. Often very hostile. The media whipped up total, unrelenting hostility to the miners, who were presented as as violent, uh, totalitarian thugs, the enemy within. Margaret Thatcher called them. Let's not forget that. Uh, so uh, this was again another example. I mean, a- a- another final, no- notorious example. Of course, was the Hillsborough disaster of 1989, when 96 Liverpool fans died, and the sun splashed on completely disgusting lies fed to them by the police, by those scumbags in that police force, claiming fans pickpocketed victims, urinated on cops, beat up an officer, giving the kiss of life. Now, those were total lies, unreconstructed lies, and the stunner still boycotted in Merseyside as a result. What does this tell us? Well, I shouldn't really have to spell it out, but let's just do it anyway. The police forces in this country have a long record of claiming things which... To put it mildly, turn out demonstrably to be completely and utterly untrue, which the media then uncritically lap out and then lap up and then and then amplify and propagate, particularly when demonized others are involved. Striking miners, working class Liverpool fans of the 1980s, who was bottom of the pile at the time as you could possibly be in that pecking order of hatred, and protesters when they're involved. And that's what they do. And they use it to whip up hysteria and hatred against their targets, but also to accumulate more power. And that's what they're doing right now. And they have a policing bill which is shoveling uh, power in their hands in our, in, in their hands, sorry, as, as Britain continues its ever- escalating trajectory towards turning into another Hungary. So we need to spell this out because what the police force said, I'm not accusing them of lying. I'd like to know what the truth is in Bristol. I'd like to know what the basis of their reports were, and we can see how they've been used. Run over. It's important to talk about. Now, uh, let's bring in uh, these two brilliant guests who are going to cheer us up, uh, Matthew Lawrence and Laurie Layburn. Hello, hello, hello. How are you both doing? Well, well, how are you? Oh well, well, well! Hi, hello, hello, hello! <laughs> Fancy seeing you here.
0: Indeed, indeed.
1: You're looking both very. Um, I mean, lockdown's been mm. crueler and kinder to some. I'd say very kind to both of you.
2: Well, <laughs> we, we didn't just do a, a yeah workout before we came on either. I mean, you look fabulous though, of course. No, the I hair, don't.
1: The hair in particular.
2: Yeah, it's okay, just, let's the, the sheen of sweat. <laughs> over,
1: <laughs> do not troll me over the hair. Yeah, exactly. I'm using I'm using sweat instead of hair wipes <laughs> to run out. Lovely. Cheers, everyone. Um, Yeah, I mean, I look terrible. But uh, there is just uh, two and a half weeks until National Haircut Day. Yeah. My appointment is 8.05pm. I won't sleep the night before. Um, So (laughs) let's just dive in because your book Planet on Fire, it is Planet on Fire. No, it's not Planet is on Fire. It's Planet on Fire. Get the title right. Planet on Fire, which comes out uh, next month. But just pre-order it, everyone. It's a must-read uh, a must uh, a must-read book, which Verso, who published my first book, um, have published. Now, let's talk about it because I have done... Yeah, I think there's problems with the title of this uh, episode. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll just change the narrative. Okay, let's just start, shall we? Is it too late to save the world? Who wants to start? Shall Ooh. I... Th- just to jump back,
0: in on the, on the on sort of the ending of the world so i'm gonna agree um with people who got in touch with you saying you know maybe the framing's not right and the book definitely is exactly about the potential and transformative potential responding to the sort of ecological catastrophe we're in but i do think it's also quite important to stress that in some ways like what is one of the constants of the last sort of 500 years of history um, really, it is the ending of worlds and ecological catastrophe, and the ex- extinction of, sort of social life and economic life worlds that come with that. Whether that's sort of you know the conquest, the you know completely barbaric violence of genocidal conquest um, of the Americas, indigenous communities right up to today, their life worlds being destroyed, their ecological worlds that they have sort of nurtured and sustained being destroyed. You know, British uh, imperial rule in India in the way it's sort of you know sort of brutalized both sort of human lives and nature. So I think. What's unique about right now is not the sort of world's being threatened, but that there's a sort of set of interconnected and accelerating crises um, that are really sort of you know, quite literally heating up. I think that what makes it distinct, but I think you know, absolutely, it can be addressed, but it's a political challenge above all, I guess, to do that.
1: Laurie, yeah, jump well, in. we we've got to
2: we've got to appreciate right that we we've we have had a, a problem over the last many decades of, of growing awareness around the environmental crisis, it's that people in positions of influence and leadership haven't necessarily been focusing on it as much as they probably should have. And I think it's, it's understandable that on the one side, you've got people who really want to stress the terror, the horror of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's a very scary thing. And sometimes those people have chafed up against others who say, oh, you know, sort of, Frames around disaster and the horror of the thing can be a bit, you know, could potentially be disabling. It, you know, it, you could become overcome by how horrendous the situation is, and it's not a positive frame. And it's been what's been really interesting over the last couple of years with the emergence of the Extinction Rebellion, the school striker movement, is to watch a group of people p- play around with frames, with narratives that do speak to the scale and pace of what's happening to the environment, what's happening to the climate, what's happening to other parts of the environment as well. And it's been very interesting to see how, on one side, more alarming frames have, you could say, been quite effective. You know, that we've had campaigners being very honest about how bad this is, has helped sort of break open the political discussion. The question now is, in the face of these of these pretty vertiginous stakes that we, that we um, find ourselves facing how do we frame it so that we can tackle the root problems you know the 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 odds are pretty horrendous they're stacked against us we know this that can be both disabling and it can be enormously scary but it can also be a motivator as well and so there's a whole thicket there of issues when it comes to being honest about the situation but also being doing so in a way that can then engender the huge action, the positive energy that we need in response.
1: So if we're going to look, let's take a kind of balance sheet, well, not a balance sheet, but how bad, let's look at the reality of the environmental situation facing the world. Because obviously, you know, not obviously, FYI for people, we're supposed to by 2030 meet a global target of keeping... That global temperature increases below one and a half centigrade above pre-industrial levels, but we've already seen the terrible consequences, of course, of the climate emergency—from uh, extreme weather, droughts, uh, destabilized ecosystems, population movements. A lot of stuff has already happened. But how how bad is the current situation? Just stop.
2: It, it's um. Lauren. It, it, it's it's almost as bad as it is possible to conceive, and probably worse even even than that. Uh, to, to put to put it lightly, um, we're in a situation where, uh, over the last number of years in particular, the scale of the climate crisis yeah. has really started to emerge. I think into the political imaginary, right? And as you say, that can be summed up by saying that we need to be reducing. The gases, the greenhouse gases that we're pumping into the atmosphere through driving, through building things, through heating our homes and that kind of stuff, by about half globally come 2030 and then completely by 2050. And we need to do that because if we don't, the temperature will keep going up and that will lead to all the horrendous kind of consequences that we hear about. Now, the problem is that the climate crisis is only one part of an overall picture of destabilization that we see across the natural world, right? We've got the climate crisis, we've got the destruction of, of biodiversity, so of, of animals and plants. We're both destroying their populations, so the number of them are decreasing, and we're also completely destroying certain types. You know, we, we're leading them into extinction. And then you've got other problems with what we're doing to nature as well. The destruction of, of land, the, the depletion of soils, which we need to be nutrient rich so we, that we can we can grow our crops, for example. And the list goes on, you know, overuse of of water. They aren't just distinct sort of discrete problems that are unconnected to each other. This is, they they interact with each other. So warmer temperatures can threaten the, the living conditions for certain species, which could push them into extinction. So all of these things are related together. We are seeing an overall destabilization of of the biosphere, of the overall life support system that the earth provides us and has been the basis for you know, non-human life, for animals and plants, but also the stable basis in which our civilizations can exist. And that is horrifying and it is unprecedented, not just in human history, but in some cases, millions, if not billions of years. And so in short, it is an unbelievably bad situation. And the full picture of it is something that politics as it's currently constituted, mainstream leaders are yet really getting their head around, at least in what they're saying.
0: Go for it, Matt. Well, I mean, just to give you one example. So there's a study out um, quite recently around one degree of temperature increase, of global average uh, temperature increase, will lead to uh, parts of the world where roughly a billion people live um being sort of basically uninhabitable the sort of level of heat rising up sort of to a degree that it's just simply not really possible for humans to live there and then in the sort of worst case scenario within that study which thing was a u.s study um you know a third of the globe will have conditions that you know approach that are typically only really seen around sahara right now now that's not for many decades and that's only one potential trajectory but it gives you the scale of the devastation that is potentially there if we continue on a trajectory without change and i think that also speaks to a wider point which you know lori kind of alludes to is that there hasn't been enough action and you know that really again you know it's when you think about it it's just extraordinary that that isn't just like front and center of everything we do and obviously in some ways that's linked to how you know the climate crisis is sort of a racialized crisis and a racist crisis it links to sort of wide uh, and deep imbalances in power both within our economy in the uk but of course you know the global economy the extraction of resources and the wealth of the global south to the north and so i think you know it really should be front and center and just you know the thing that sort of completely dominates and yet we still have a situation where you know much of contemporary politics um and you know there has been really important shifts you know labor's 2019 manifesto potentially you know there are other areas of of hope but where you often have sort of politics and the political offer and then at the end it's like oh yeah a climate offer rather than it being or an uh, environmental offer in the round and in some ways it's how do we get to you know getting that position where actually everything is about systemic transformation not sort of like we're going to tinker here and then here's some things for the climate and the environment at the back end but it really is as Laurie says sort of the scale the pace
1: and the damage are really unprecedented trends can i drop the c-bomb in i should probably clarify what that is capitalism Capitalism. Capitalism, just so we clear. Capitalism. We're talking about capitalism. Let's talk about how does capitalism fit into this? Because some would say, well, I'm just, I don't know why I'm throwing this in, but, you know, obviously a lot on the right are basically like, you little watermelons. And the reason they call us watermelons is uh, anyone who's familiar with the fruit, the watermelon, is aware of generally the, unless it's a rotten watermelon, the color, which is, of course, it is, green on the outside and red on the inside. And of course, what they're suggesting is, oh, these, they pretend they're green, but they're just using this because they're trying to find a way to bring in socialism and they're just latched onto this to make their socialist dreams possible. Um, and they'd say, well, actually, capitalism can provide the answers. You know, why? Leave capitalism alone. Stop knocking on about capitalism all the time. So where does capitalism, I like the way I just added my little Milton Friedman standing, <laughs> uh, that's who I now am, a Milton Friedman. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a nightmare explaining this to all my subscribers. Laurie, go for it. Capitalism. We, have, we tell her... Oh, a, Matt. oh can, Laurie. Well, uh, can I just
0: jump in on the yeah, watermelon for a little... Yes, Matt, little... uh,
1: jump in on the watermelon. Well, actually, so,
0: here's a, so it's actually a uh, the phrase watermelon of, like, you know, green on the outside, red on the inside. It's actually a phrase that was, like, coined by fossil fuel denialists on the far right, and actually Marine Le Pen's father, the guy who said, like, you know... Creighton and led the front and national front in france there's like images of him cutting a watermelon on stage at their political rallies so it's quite an interesting history of like you know where that term came from and so sort of what it denotes and so sort the of, you know the pathologies of like fossil capital people like andreas Malm uh sort of speaks to that i mean and i'll you know, kind of flurry, but you know, obviously this is this crisis is inseparable from the sort of fundamental dynamics of extraction expansion, enclosure, exploitation that is you know, rooted systemically in how capitalism operates over the centuries. You know, in, in different institutions and in different formations, you can't escape the sort of environmental crisis is inseparable from capitalism.
1: So basically, I haven't just become Milton Friedman, I've actually gone full fash. Lovely stuff. <laughs> Laurie, the C word, capitalism. We we
2: tell a story in a book, right? Um, in fact, it's right at the beginning. We... We, we look around and we, we look at the comments of various people uh, as they try to understand why this is happening, why we have the kind of disaster I mapped out just now. And, you know, you get, you get uh, some people saying, oh, you know, people are psychologically predisposed to being short-termist. You get other people saying, oh, this is a result of all these horrendous dirty technologies we've got ourselves hooked onto and that kind of stuff, right? And this sort of often mainstream frame that's trying to comprehend how on earth it got to this point sometimes gestures to the story of Easter Island of of Rapa Nui in the uh, the language of the local culture and you know this is right out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or you know off off South America and you get these stories about how in the 1700s Europeans arrived the Dutch arrived um, and they named it Easter Island because they came upon it on uh, Easter Sunday and they found, or they claimed to have found, a civilization that had done these extraordinary things, had built the, the head and torso statues that you see across the island that we now associate, at least uh, in the West, with Easter Island. And, but, but the island was a mess. They, they cut down all the trees. This, the, the, the group of people that seemed to remain on the island would, were clearly not the advanced civilization that led to those head and torso statues. And as time went on, it, it became clear to these people that what had happened is that they'd overused their their environment, which was isolated from the rest of humanity. Right? This really is out there, remote, many, 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 many miles from from any other country, from any mainland. <laughs> and they overused their resources. They'd destroyed the foundation upon which they could grow food, and their society collapsed. And we can see there the telltale signs of our innate short-termism. You know, these people were just looking after them, looking out for themselves. They weren't doing it maliciously, but it led to their demise. And they were using technologies, including the creation of these statues, which needed rollers to cut down the trees, roll them along, and that led to the destruction of society. And the world is like a a, a planet-sized Easter Island, where these kind of innate um, problems that humans have when it comes to dealing with these big issues, a leading disaster. The problem with that story is it isn't, it turns out it's not true. And the latest scholarship shows that actually the people on the island were probably prior to the arrival of, of Europeans living in a reasonable steady state. They had created certain cultural mechanisms in which it meant that they could manage the sort of shared the commons on the island in a way that was sustainable and instead, what led to the demise of the, the reasonably complex society that we'd seen in East Island at that time was disease brought by Europeans, was the persistent slaving, uh, the murder, and sexploit- the sexual exploitation of the people on the island. You then got to ask yourself the question, well, why on earth was that happening to that island? And the people that were going and doing that, who were coming from Western countries that were the other side of the world, I'm not doing it for a laugh, they were compelled there by global economic systems that meant that they were seeking out cheap nature and cheap bodies to feed into processes of profit-making. And the fact that that story is itself not the mainstream story is an interesting story in itself. It shows you the biases of the mainstream. It shows you that um, our understanding of how we got to this point has become this sort of depoliticized secular myth when in fact that it's it's intimately related to 500 years of the development of an economic system that begins with C, was spread around the world by forces that begin with I and imperialism, and then led us to the position that we find ourselves in now.
1: Matt, talk about capitalism with me, including, I suppose, I mean, in terms of the way, I mean, because there's so many... It's multifaceted. But I mean, if we look today, for example, how it was quite interesting. The Guardian had these files last week, which revealed uh, that for a long time, various fossil fuel companies were aware that pollution killed people. Uh, And in fact, today, it's estimated pollution kills more people globally than cigarettes do, about 8 million people a year. So they've known this for years, but they deliberately lobbied against Clean air regulations, which would have saved lives. That's just one example. Which is, you know, you know, there was a study a few years ago by a couple of academics in the United States, which claimed that the U.S. wasn't actually a democracy; it was an oligarchy because vested interests would always gain the system uh, to get to, you know, their their self interest dressed up as political. Well, self, I mean, that's how it works. Their own economic self interested uh, was was you know achieved its goals in the political system even though it went against the interests of the wider population and obviously what in under capitalism i mean the u.s is a very striking example of big money but the same is true here even if it's not quite so vulgar i suppose um they can i mean that's one way isn't it that these these forces can you know dominate political systems and have done for a long time in neoliberalism accelerator but how how else i mean just talk talk me through it kind of your own views on capitalism and how it intersects yeah yeah, absolutely
0: it's interesting you know you mentioned sort of the companies it's not just that they knew it's that particularly on the climate science exxon was amongst like the earliest you know sort of you know analysts and they were the most spot on in some ways of the forecast so back you know as far back as the 60s and 70s they had a very real sense of where levels of, sort of carbon use, extraction, and burning would lead to, and the sort of consequences. So you know, it's a really sort of like you know criminal enterprise in many ways to have continued um, down that path just for the uh, point of accumulation. I think you know you've obviously got that the political lobbying and the sort of like you know the sort of wedding together of the state and you know the capitalist state and you know, private accumulation processes and sort of profit making with major corporations in particular. But in some ways, sort of stepping back, there's almost a sort of you know, deeper logics um, at work and I, I guess it's a sort of point to two that sort of capitalism as a sort of um social relation as a sort of way for organizing production as a way for sort of organizing societies really sort of embeds and drives towards the climate crisis and um, so, so the first thing it does and these are also incidentally things that you know the response and transformative sort of liberatory response has to push back against so the first is it sort of naturalizes social relations. So it casts as sort of things that just like just are, that's just how they are. Things like, you know, work, how work is organized for what purpose sort of social relations in terms of, you know, social reproduction. And that then sort of bakes in hierarchies of power, bakes in hierarchies decision making, who gets to say what we invest in, what we control, what we do, how we work, why we work. And so that that naturalization is a sort of deep problem to resist. But then at the same time, it completely relies upon ultimately sort of what you know what Marx called the free gifts of nature. So, you know, whether it's rivers, you know, sort of fossil fuels, you know, and of, of course there's work to extract these, to use these, to sort of transform, you know, the metabolism of you know natural systems into profit. But it's sort of is completely reliant on that. And I suppose you know the alternative to sort of move beyond this, um, at the very you know, the first two things in some ways at a sort of systemic level is one to actually insist the economy and sort of markets and you know how our economy develops is not natural it's not beyond or pre-political it's exactly shaped by collective decisions shaped by institutions that we ultimately can control if we can democratize them and we can actually sort of transform therefore and that's the hopeful message we can indeed transform the economy while at the same time is pushing back against sort of how capitalism sort of uh, naturalizes things we need to denaturalize social relations and economic relations we also need to re-embed the economy back into natural systems, so we need to sort of, you know, bring ourselves better into alignment with, um you know, sort of, you know, ecological relations, ecological reproduction, and so that's sort of the the double challenge. And I think, you know, the the the, the sort of response may well be, and we cover this a little bit in the book, of sort of, I guess, the mainstream and sort of, you know, neoliberalism as sort of, uh, sort of market enforcing process. We'll say, well, no worries, we'll just put a price on carbon, we'll throw in some incentives here. And it'll all be fine. Not only do we think that that won't work, partly because you know, the accumulated stock of, of carbon emissions and of environmental degradation is sort of so extensive and so late in the day that it won't work, but it also misses a sort of you know emancipatory potential that we just won't get with capitalism. And so you know one one sort of make it sort of tangible. One example would be sort of electric vehicles. You know, yes, we can maybe incentivize uh, you know at very extensive public subsidy. transition to electric vehicles but in some ways the transition of mobility which is completely bound up in questions of power of race of inequality that so when we think about mobility we want to be thinking about new models of sort of public luxury public transport decommodified free provision and so in that transition reimagine our social worlds as well as our environmental worlds and that's obviously something that capitalism just simply is not equipped to and indeed stands
1: in tension against to do for us now i mean partly we've answered this but just throw it in uh in terms of the world failing to act on the existential crisis facing humanity because actually obviously short-termism built into capitalism you can see why but it's not gonna be great for capitalism in the long run when if we face the destruction of civilization as we know it and also why is this an act of justice you've also touched on that but yeah laurie do you want to go for that
2: the, it's partly because that history that I mentioned. Right, you've got a situation where many of those who have always been on the front line of not just the injustices of our economic system, but also the negative environmental consequences, are the people who contributed least to the problem. Right. So let's take the UK. Um, it is a country, and that has existed now for a decent amount of time. And in that time, it has contributed the fifth largest contribution to the cumulative amount of emissions that go into the atmosphere, right? So think of, the, think of the atmosphere roughly like a bathtub. It's the total amount that causes the overall problem. You know, you, you fill up too much, it's spinning over the sides. And we, the, this country, the history of this country has contributed about the fifth largest amount. And in the process, it's become the fifth wealthiest country. It's also spread a certain economic model, a model of development around the world and in the process of doing that through imperialism has had negative implications on countries, particularly in the global South, that live on to this day. Those countries are the ones who are in positions around the world in which they are seeing a disproportionate amount of environmental impact. They're also the ones who are least responsible. Many of the countries that are say former colonies of, of, of Britain in Africa, are somewhere around the low 100s or mid 100s in the cumulative league table for just the climate problem and because of these historical legacies they're also in a situation where they may not have the resources or the capabilities in which they will be able to defend themselves at least relative to what britain will be able to do as things really heat up and that isn't just the thing between countries it is a thing within countries as well and across communities those who uh, live in this country or, say, the US, where there is a, you know, a, a increasingly uh, articulate political message on this, it is those communities who have often been the ones who have been most disenfranchised and negatively affected by um, our economic systems are also the ones who are increasingly on the front line of the environmental issue. So we've got to deal with that massive inequality both across countries and within countries not just because we have a moral responsibility to do so both historically, but also in the present. And of course, into the future, Mm -hmm. younger people will be by definition impacted more by this than, than people who've lived longer. We're not just doing it for a moral reason. We're doing it for a practical reason as well. And we, we see a similar situation with the pandemic to put it bluntly in a high inequality, low cooperation world. We don't have the capability to deal with this effectively and Alongside the moral imperative, there is also that practical imperative, what often in say in the context of the pandemic and vaccine distribution is called, you know, sort of enlightened self-interest where we can't do this global problem unless we are working together as a world and high cooperation requires by definition almost lower inequality and therefore high levels of trust and, and greater levels of an effective response.
1: Matthew, before we segue into, we did promise optimism. Uh, Before we do that, uh, do you want to just add your own specific contributions there? Yeah, I mean, so... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: I think Laurie summed it up pretty well, but I think it's important when we think about sort of the justice question, which I think that in some ways gets to the heart of, sort of different political approaches. So exactly going back to my previous point around, you know, we may well be able to decarbonize um, our economy fairly rapidly. You know, that leaves aside some of the other sort of environmental systems that are in acute crisis. But we may well be able to decarbonize fairly rapidly, not nearly rapidly enough, but fairly rapidly some of our industrial systems, our transport systems, et cetera, et cetera. But that will leave out the sort of dual justice. One that point that Laurie made—that sort of those who are sort of already bearing the brunt of this catastrophe are those who are sort of least responsible societies, as individuals, for the sort of current state of environmental um, crisis. So that's an injustice. But then, as we sort of transform, you know, that just injustice question of you know how we organise work in you know, extraordinary um, disfiguring inequalities of wealth and power. And then, of course, you know, I mentioned earlier, sort of, you know, the injustice, you know, the climate crisis is a racist crisis in the sense like fossil power, fossil capital has, you know, extracted and degraded the global south in particular, you know, for broadly sort of, you know, white sort of nations in the global north, Um, you know, and so I think it's just completely entangled and inseparable from questions of systemic injustice and therefore any sort of um, you know meaningful emancipation response has to sort of not just talk about decarbonisation and sort of rebalancing you know and realigning our sort of economic systems with sort of natural systems but about rooting out sort of these injustices that we through the core of the story of both how we got here and where we're heading towards
1: unless we change so in terms of the way forward i mean the green New deal is obviously something which is much spoken about in progressive circles um in the United States the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been a particularly prominent champion. Um, And in this country, Labour went in 2019 with the Green Industrial Revolution, uh, which the Tories have raided in rhetoric, if not in substance, which we can talk about. Um, But this was, and uh, I suppose without, I was going to say without going through the bitterness of uh, what happened in 2019, but I did that in a book anyway, so... Uh, (laughs) Um, but, you know, a lot of people involved in that, I suppose, would be frustrated that that message was was not in any way relevant to the 2019 election campaign in the way they would have wanted, uh, I suppose, you know, given Labour was arguably doomed at that point, maybe that wouldn't have been the best five days otherwise, it would have been even more buried under that rubble. But it, it was, you know, actually, if people look back at the policy proposals, they were obviously very... Very good. So do you want to, should we just talk about that? The Green New Deal, Green Industrial Revolution, whatever we call it. I um, had Steve Turner from Unite the other day talking about his own perspective, from a trade union perspective on that. Lori, do you want to talk about that, those, those kind of responses and where maybe their limits are and where they could go further?
2: So to put it bluntly, um, right now uh, in mainstream politics, which I'm, I'm saying I think the Green New Deal has entered into, that is really the only credible plan that we see being there in mainstream politics, essentially. Um, we are in a situation where we have got to, this is at the heart of it, we have got to expedite all of the, all of the investments that really needed to happen when probably all of us were born. Um, we need to expedite those and get them going really quick. We need to mobilize the extraordinary potential of the state as a spender and a coordinator uh, to do that. And because of the reasons that we just went through, it needs to be done in a way that, A, deals with, is, is, is alive to and deals with existing inequalities and also is able to maximize the, in the jargon, co-benefits, the, you know, wonderful upsides of a lot of those changes that, you know, whisper it, we could have been doing anyway, like, making sure that transport wasn't as dirty and having shared public spaces and that kind of stuff. Um, I think one of the issues this decade, one of the defining stories of this decade could be that um, you will see some countries beginning to implement a version, roughly, of that kind of Green New Deal strategy. COP26, the UN, the major UN climate conference that's being held in, in Glasgow at the end of this year, I think could be ground zero for a kind of Status quo triumphalism, where to put it bluntly, neoliberalism or modified version of it gives this a go, and it does that by saying, "Okay, we accept this. You know, you were right, the the school kids, that this is a serious problem now, and we're going to unleash the kind of scale investment that's needed." So it's not just a case of you know saying we're going to push the investments that needed; it's also providing the enabling policies to do so, like spending big like we're hearing Joe Biden talk about in the US. And that is absolutely uh, some progress. But it can hit up against two problems. One, which is at the heart of the Green New Deal, the bit where I don't think it will a mainstream response will not follow through in a Green New Deal, is adhering to elements of equity and really having at its heart an analysis of inequality and then a response that begins to undo a lot of present and historical injustice. The second thing is, even if you incorporated all that kind of stuff as well, it needs an analysis of the consumption model at the heart of our economic system. You could swap dirty for clean as much as you like, but you are still going to be causing extraordinary environmental damage mm-hmm. in the process of making those changes, which are, of course, better than the dirty alternatives, and to meet up with the growing demand for more stuff for more material consumption that we are essentially saying is going to keep happening year on year and year year over the course of trying to deal with the environmental problem. And this is an area where I think this analysis is a complement to the Green New Deal, but it's one where policies that are in or around the Green New Deal really need to get to the heart of is that this, this consumption model and consumption, the current conception of just year on year, increasing the amount of material stuff that we're using without necessarily understanding its impacts on our well-being, that's an area where, you know, the Green New Deal and conception of it are going further. And we explore a number of ways to deal with that in a book, which I will leave Matt to explain.
1: <laughs> oh, Matt, there it is. Bam! Locked <laughs> out of you. Well, catch. Yeah. Go for
2: it. So I think in some ways, it's key
0: to understand in some ways the, the political crisis of the climate crisis is that we don't have power essentially so you know the 2019 manifesto was stuffed full of ideas that are exactly sort of you know bending towards the ambition scale and institutional transformation we need and the, the problem is not we don't have the ideas necessarily it's how do we sort of build the political coalitions that can overcome entrenched interests powerful entrenched interests whether it's you know rontier giants fossil fuel giants you know this sort of coalition you know the carbon coalition how do we overcome them and so you know some of the things um you know laurie gestures to give you an example of that you know i say we've got all the answers not us in the book although we offer a few but like you know the broader movement that's pushing for transformation you know when we talk about you know a new consumption model it could be inter in place of, sort of privatized consumption it could be a sort of 21st sort of you know century commons and sort of universal basic services so you know reimagining you know decommodified free public transport, or you know towns and sort of um, cities turned over to sort of you know um, shared spaces, parks, you know forms of public luxury and public consumption. And in some ways, you know the city in some ways. And you know, Mike Davis, the American sort of uh, historian, kind of has this phrase around the cities being sort of you know the incubator of sort of ecological luxury. So right now it's you know, intense uh, carbon consumption, but it's got the potential to incubate sort of a post carbon luxury for all. Uh, and you know we can go through it you know we can think about how we can democratize um production and provision so instead of you know producing for profit it's producing for environmental and social needs and again we know how to do that we can think about ownership structures we can think about how companies are governed you know reclaiming them from finance turning them over to so- social needs and we you know, we explore all these things i think then there's that sort of structural problem of the Green New Deal, you know, it comes at the end of like a long downturn in capitalism. So you know, if you look at all the stats, sort of broadly a downward trend on productivity, on investment, on output. So it's a very stagnant situation. So in some ways that enables something like a Green New Deal to really sort of you know, build a big coalition. Because, you know, Steve Turner answered, sort of, you know, there'll be a lot of good unionized work in building out the infrastructures, the industries, the institutions. Of a post-carbon sort of future, and so sort of, you know, a plentiful one of that, and an equitable one of that. But again, it's about how do we construct the political antagonisms, the political coalitions that can sort of win that future, and that's really, in some ways, the key challenge for you know everyone fighting for that type of future right now.
1: So, just finally, final little part um, in terms of where we are now. So, Biden, etc. Labour. Got, I've got to the point. I can't. I can't help I, when I mention Labour. I laugh. Not a good sign. Is it generally speaking? But that I can't help it. There's nothing I can do about it. I say Labour, I say I mean I mean, I'd love to know where Labour are on on this and everything else. To be fair, Ed Millerban's in that position, and he in that shadow cabinet, I would say is a force for good. Um he actually believes in something, so that helps. Um, yeah, so in terms of where things are at with contemporary politics, um, and in terms of strategy, how do we get? What do we actually do strategically? How, in in this great struggle, we're going to have obviously lockdown, relaxing. We're going to have a summer of hedonism, mm-hmm. uh, no, but we'll be able to and haircuts, <laughs> yeah, we'll- <and> we'll- haircuts, <sighs> haircuts and hedonism. Mm-hmm. That's definitely and other H's. So, Laurie, <laughs> what what what's your what's your what? In terms of on that, where are we at in terms of contemporary politics and how do we struggle? I'm asking for struggle.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think we can learn. There's there's an enormous amount amount we can learn from across the world. One area that, as you mentioned there, is particularly interesting is the US. And... Over the last couple of years, the sort of emergence of this amazing ferment of, of action and attention on the environmental crisis that has seen, you know, Green New Deal shoot to the top of the political agenda in, in at times in the US. Underneath it is an increasingly mature, what I would call ecosystem of influence of groups that I think we need to um, have our own kind of UK translation of, you know, we're, it's not like we're starting from from day one at all, but there's a lot I think we can learn over there. You've got um, very mature, increasingly mature social movements that are linked explicitly to the environmental agenda, the Sunrise Movement being one that is at the forefront, but a number of others, including frontline communities who've been fighting against, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure and pipelines for a very long time. And there's a tradition that goes back even further, in Indigenous communities... Uh, in the US. So you've got these increasing mature social movements, something which um, at times has not necessarily been on a mass scale and to the level of, of radicalism, particularly when it comes to its economic analysis that we've seen in the UK, that has maybe started to, to change or, or, or move to a, a new level of development with things like Extinction Rebellion or Fridays for the Future and, and the sort of whole assortment of social movements that are coming from various quarters on the environment. This is another reason why the, the policing bill could be a particular problem, because, you know, where would we be in the environmental debate if we hadn't have had the Extinction Rebellion occupation of London in April 2019 or all the school strike movement that's occurring? Right. So you've got these social movements that they then have got this amazing policy ballast to them that's supported by a range of of you know, academics, thinkers, writers, and a, a, a few upstart think tanks, you know, often from a younger generation who are saying, not just making the, 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 the narrative around a Green New Deal uh, reach the political mainstream, but they're bottoming it out. They've got plans, detailed plans for how you would do this. So there's little excuses for existing decision makers to ignore it or for then, hopefully when these people get in charge, to then deliver on it. And then they are connected to politicians, to people who are delivering, advocating, bringing that message to the front line. People like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and are very capable in doing so. And that structure seems to be working quite effectively. And that's evidenced by the amazing work that was done to pressure the Biden campaign to take on a more radical stance when it came to or <laughs> proportionate stance when it came to dealing with the environmental emergency and i think we've seen that continue as then that campaign has become the biden administration so there's a huge amount that we can learn there we've got many of the constituents that exist upon that sort of transmission pathway uh, if you could call it that i just described there and we need to look at how we can get everything lined up in a position where things are, are really buzzing and and when it comes to the labor party i think you know, our translation, you could say, of, of Alexandria Casa cortez a kind of you know, amazing person who's come along and, and dragged, along with other people and a lot of, and a lot of supporters and, and helpers, the, the Overton window across in American politics, I think our translation of that here in the UK is sort of a caucus of younger MPs either already in Parliament or, or being elected as soon as possible who, who come in and bring this message very articulately and in the process, help drag a lot of the mainstream conversation in Parliament so that, you know, in one sense, there is an outrider there for then, say, you know, the centre of Labour Party policy, um, who is saying, you know, guys, you, you really keep coming in this direction and, and holding people to account in that way. Matt. Yeah,
0: thanks. I mean, so a couple of things. I think, you know, the, your point about struggle Um is critical and uh, you know in some ways returning right back to the start of you know your intro and reading a you know, great intro um and i think thinking it's always like sisters uncut I think and the demonstrations in recent weeks have really actually shown one potential path forward so I think there's going to be multiple paths but I think that shows a really powerful way forward which is like social movements that you know aren't you know too much focused on sort of parliamentary politics they exist outside of that they might have a sort of uh, relation but they are so sort of focused on building social power from the you know and interconnected struggles whether it's you know renting sort of agenda-based uh, violence whatever it might be they are building social power on the streets and demonstrations in some sort of social networks so i think uh, continuing to do that and i think it'll be really interesting to see whether when lockdown eases the sort of momentum from school strikers and you know sort of Green New Deal movements can then sort of spill back out onto the streets in the run up to COP, which is a uh, COP twenty six, which is the sort of big climate conference in Glasgow at the end of the year. I think then clearly, you know, in and beyond the party style, you know, strategy, and you know, I think uh, James Schneider on recently he's you know done a series of uh, very good essays on sort of that relationship and sort of how do you sort of seek to build leverage, seek, seek to build power within you know an institution like the Labour Party and sort of thinking about not just sort of the Labour Party, which is obviously a, a particular institution, but then sort of the state, you know, from both the UK state, but sort of you know, global, sort of how states interact within a global sort of capitalist system. Yeah, you know, what is our plan for the state? Thinking about that, I think then you know, we need to be thinking about what is the sort of and this is where I think there are real strengths. Um, because ultimately, like our offer is one of you know, you know, gro- it might be growth of a different kind, but it's growth of you know, thriving life, of resilient communities, of you know, joy and collective creativity rather than sort of you know, sort of. The politically enforced you know limits that we have today um but i think we need to think about that post you know post-carbon sort of coalition um and so what that might, might that be it might be thinking about how do we center an economy on care and the valorization and the rewarding of care work in all its dimensions reparative care work so the sustaining of life which is really you know, the central function but which is consistently sort of denied its you know proper share under capitalism and then that begins to build out you know quite different sort of uh, coalitions it's about thinking about you know steve turner's sort of members you know what is sort of a green industrial strategy that you know really takes seriously just transitions in place not just in aggregate but thinking about like what would it look like the side and sort of the chemicals of hub up there you know how would we sort of transform you know steel in the uk and sort of decarbonized steel which is roughly a tenth of all global emissions so like what are the sort of specific ways we can combine material interests with the political strategy to change that and then i think you know you know we might disagree with them in some ways what i think we also need is is which goes back again to your early point we need a sense of like transformative optimism that yes you know it it is a very grave situation but you know we broadly have to say well actually this is a moment to transform and transcend beyond the limits of the institutions and ways of life of the fossil fuel age and build out a much more emancipatory much more free much more sort of liberated future for all of us i think the political challenge there I think, you know, this is a big challenge, I think, for the left more widely noticed on climate uh, and environmental issues. But exactly the scale of the challenge and transformation we need is the thing that makes people worried and anxious and concerned for their livelihoods, their jobs, their futures. And so in some ways, the message to me seems to be that actually in an era of increasing environmental instability and inequality, the much, much more dangerous path, much more unstable path, is cleaving to the status quo or defending just marginality and tweaks. And actually, a systemic crisis is much more safely met with ambitious systemic responses. So I think that's got, of, you know, got to be at the centre of us of politics and what we're sort of struggling for um, going forwards, whether that's in workplaces, in communities, on the streets, you know, within sort of, within and beyond the infrastructures and institutions of the fossil fuel age.
1: So actually, while you were speaking, I changed the title, which is... <laughs> the only time I've ever done that. In That's my time cheating, isn't it? That's cheating. Yes, the whole frame's <laughs> gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I cheated. Uh, gee, this is how we save humanity. Uh, yeah. which is more, if i more a, a former empowering, less demobilising title. So the podcast will go out with that title. So then people listen to the podcast and go, there's nothing depressing about the title. What are you talking about? Um, but there we have it. That was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, exposition. Thank you so much, both of you. People just... Obviously, now you're all going to pre-order Planet on Fire. Mm. Come on. Uh, Seriously, both are two of the best uh, progressive thinkers we have, so we're lucky to have them. And everyone should read their work. And this book obviously is a masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So do, 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 do. If you're feeling depressed, look, I mean, we've had a – it's not been easy. Uh, So this this is definitely a book which will galvanize you to fight for – to save us uh, and also build a a just sustainable world. That's what we should be fighting for. So thank you. Thank you both. Uh, I I look forward to having a nice golden pint with you in the sun. I (laughs) I know it will
2: will come. Yeah.
1: (laughs) 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 uh, To paraphrase paraphrase Queen Elizabeth II, we will drink (laughs) again. So anyway, it's a real it's way to yeah. I like it. Good
2: just go there. If I make that the title,
1: maybe I will. We will drink again. Yeah, I'm not trolled enough, so I thought I'd have to. (laughs) Um, I uh, seriously, that was uh, very very powerful stuff. So thank you so much. I owe you both a pint, and uh, I uh, please do pre-order everyone. And thank you both so much. I'll see you soon. Thanks.
2: We take care. Take
1: care, all. Uh, they're great. See, brilliant. So we're very lucky. I know we don't normally, look, I stopped doing Thursday shows. I just thought it'd be nice, ad hoc, you know. It's not the rule of six yet. What are you going to do with your lives anyway? I just thought, why not do it? Uh, so uh, it was good to have them live. And uh, obviously this will go out to the podcast and uh, elsewhere so people can can listen, think it through, act upon it, buy their books. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into a very ad hoc uh, show. We really, really appreciate it. I just want to do a, a little shout out to Rob Hogg, Adriana Pexato from Portugal, and uh, Tarana. Thank you for your support throughout the show. Thank you, everybody else. Um, we are working on, we need to work out a next documentary to do. I've got a few ideas, but I'd really appreciate your help on Patreon. If you subscribed, you can help us decide what documentaries we do. Uh, but... Uh, now things – it's easier to do a documentary than it was before, that's for sure. Uh, so do do help us out there. Uh, do subscribe uh, if you're on YouTube. Subscribe and click the subscribe button. On the podcast, uh, leave a review, press five stars. It just helps because then other people listen to the podcast. That's the whole point. Um, and subscribe and spread the word. But we really appreciate it. We'll be back. Oh, just quickly, actually, just so you've got a kind of like little – my producer's going to be like, can you just go off air now? Um, we've got Jim Sterling, uh, who's the iconic YouTuber. Uh, that interview is coming up imminently. It was a very big pleasure to interview Jim Sterling about being a prominent non-binary person, about their about gaming, about wrestling. We covered a lot, a lot of ground. Uh, we also are interviewing... Emma DeBeery about her book, what white people can do next uh, from allyship to coalition. So that will be up very soon on both YouTube and the podcast. Uh, so very much looking forward to for that. We've got loads of stuff coming up over the next few days. We've got George, the poet, we're going to be interviewing him. We've got loads of people we're interviewing. It's very exciting. And as well as that, the documentaries, videos, rants uh, on YouTube, Facebook, on the podcast, on Instagram, wherever else part of our burgeoning media empire. So thank you for your support for those who've been supporting this. Thanks for our guests. I will see you live for whatever we're talking about this Sunday at midday, 12 o'clock, which has proved to be better. I think people are much happier with that because you've got lives. So uh, I look forward to see you live on Sunday and look out for the interviews and videos to come. I'll see see you very soon.